0: Thank you so much for letting me be a part of your show um, to your audience. Hello, I'm Melissa Brown. I'm a trombonist and educator based in the Midlands of the UK. My accent might have been a bit of a giveaway there for you. <laughs> um, and I'm also the uh, host and producer and sort of the whole team behind Boulders Bros Podcast
1: awesome fellow podcaster it's so great all right very cool I'd like to just start by asking you um how you got started in music in the first place I know um some of my friends that I've had on the podcast that are from the UK had kind of a different early music experience than maybe some of my friends that are from the US so I'd like to hear what your experience is like growing up you know being a trombonist
0: yeah sure so um my earliest experiences of music um were probably in in primary school so we did quite a lot of we took recorder classes when we we're in primary school um and we sang a lot in in assembly i went to a church school here in the uk and they tend to get you to sing a lot in assembly so i think that's probably like what i remember doing at the earliest point but when i first got interested in brass music is uh because of my dad um my dad plays the tuba as a hobby um, and he used to disappear off to band rehearsals every Tuesday, and <laughs> apparently I was about seven, maybe six or seven, when I started asking, "Okay, well, where does Dad go with that big bit of shiny metal every Tuesday? Because I want in on that." Um, so when I was when I was nine, I got the chance to to start playing a brass instrument as well. Um, and I grew up in the British brass band tradition, so some of your listeners may know that that's it's uh, it's probably the biggest sort of brass movement, if you like, in in the UK. Um, There's probably far more amateur brass players here than there ever would be professional brass players. Mm -hmm. Um, So I got lessons for free through my brass band to start off with. And I know that there are a lot of bands that operate in a similar way now. So I would go along on a Tuesday evening, just before what they called their senior band. So that was their main band. They would have Junior band and before the junior band, there were a really sweet couple in our band that would give tuition to beginners. So they weren't trying to like take away from professional teachers. They were just being the people to give you your first instrument and your very basic instruction. So you would get to learn like five notes, maybe an octave um, and you'd get some basic banding experience with the junior group. So that's what I did, first of all. and once I got into secondary school, um, so high school, I got to start having lessons properly at school. So I was about 11. So I would have my lessons in school and I would still go to band every week and get my ensemble playing in. So I was really lucky that I had both tuition and ensemble
1: experience from the off. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know like just from speaking to people, you know, I've had people from, you know, all over the world, all different countries, and it is very interesting to me to hear how music education is structured, um, in different schools and how it's, it's done, you know, like in the U S it's like very formalized and that large ensemble playing is pretty much generally used from the very beginning when it comes to instruments. Right. So like, Mm -hmm. um, school I work at now, we usually start with like, um, small group playing with like uh, my school starts in fifth grade. When I was in school, I started in fourth grade. It's usually around that time started like small group playing and then eventually get thrown into the big band. And that's what it's done, you know, during school all the way through to 12th grade. So I find it really interesting when, um, you know, different education programs do do different things. Um, And I I don't necessarily think that there's, you know, one method is more superior to the other, because I feel like, you know, no matter what, if you are, you know, super passionate about what you do, and you put the work in, you're going to be successful as a professional musician. I just find it interesting, you know, my educator brain is like going off, like thinking about (laughs) how different things are structured. (laughs) So I just wanted to comment on that. It is, it is different, for sure. Yeah, and I think it's my, my sort of
0: strong feeling about brass playing is as long as you get some decent guidance and some ensemble playing, it doesn't really matter how that takes shape. But I think they're the two things that make a, a decent starting brass musician.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. For sure. So whenever you can get that opportunity to play an ensemble is super important. Um, so... You played all the way throughout school and you attended college for music, of course. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your um, conservatory experience um, as a music student? Yeah,
0: so I um, I think it's important for me to say, first of all, that when you audition for music colleges here, you get... Um, Various degrees of places. So you mm-hmm. either get an unconditional or conditional place, which means you definitely have a place at the university, or you can be offered a reserve place, which is exactly what it says on the tin. You know, if somebody doesn't take their place, you might be offered one. So I did get to study at Trinity Laban Conservatoire of Music and Dance. I, I love my my uh, <laughs> my former college, but that really does not roll off the tongue quite so easily. Um, I actually went there on a reserve place so I didn't get uh, offered the the full position on my course to start with so I, I mentioned this only because I think everyone thinks when you go to conservatoire it's a one and done deal you're going to be an awesome musician and everyone gets accepted straight out of the gate and that wasn't necessarily the case for me so I took a chance on a reserve place that I might not have been given I was lucky that I did then get that position um, so there were Uh, three tenor trombonists and a bass trombonist in my year. So the way that they operated at Trinity at the time couldn't necessarily speak to what they do now, is -hmm. that they would take in enough students so that you could make a chamber group of some form in your year, whether it was quintet, quartet, dectet, and so on. Um, So they made sure they took in enough trombones to make a trombone quartet. Um, So that's sort of how I started and and where I studied. Um, I was super lucky to study with some of the best trombonists that there are in London. Um, I had a bit of an unorthodox experience in that I changed teacher almost every single year. That wasn't typical, and I think nowadays it's still not very typical. Um, It was through no fault of anybody's, it was just sort of life circumstances. So my first year I studied with uh, Mark Templeton, who's the principal trombone player of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, in my second year, I studied with uh, freelance, awesome superstar Carol Jarvis, and in my third and fourth years, I studied with Phil White, who's the second trombone with the Philharmonia Orchestra. Um, so you know, pretty big names from from mm-hmm. orchestra in in London. So I was studying the the classical program, so focusing on orchestral performing and uh, chamber performing and things like that.
1: That's awesome, and and what a great experience to be able to. Um take lessons from so many different trombonists too, who do different Mm -hmm. things. Um, I think that's a really great experience that you had, um, to be able to work with those people and to have, um, you know, different opinions and different perspectives, um, Mm -hmm. on playing and different people, right. Like to people who identify in different ways, um, being your teacher, Mm -hmm. because they all have different experiences based upon who they are as well. So I think that's really awesome that you had that experience. They
0: also offer the
1: opportunity to take
0: what they call a second study. So if you played an, a second instrument to a high level, you could have studied that. Um, or you can you can take your study in other things. So I did two years of, of jazz and my teacher, God love him, I, I studied jazz with Mark Bassey, and he is awesome. He's an absolute phenomenal trombone player. Um, and he has some interesting physical disabilities. So mm. it's really worth like looking him up online because he's really fascinating to watch. And just his playing is superb. But at the end of my second year, he very diplomatically said to me, uh, Melissa, perhaps your second study hours might be better used elsewhere, which was a um, really lovely diplomatic way of saying you're not very good at jazz. <laughs> and he's <laughs> not wrong, to be fair. It is, it is not my strong suit at all. So those opportunities are also there. So you don't just have to fit into that one box from the off. Um,
1: It just happened to be the way that I decided that my playing (laughs) should be That's awesome. The diplomatic way of saying you're not very good at jazz. (laughs) I love that. Okay, so, you know, you had this experience, you graduated. How did your uh, collegiate experience at at your conservatory uh, prepare you for your professional career as a freelance performer and as an educator, how did that prepare you for for that world?
0: So when I was studying in our third and fourth year, is when you choose your sort of specialized subjects. So lots of people do composing or they do arranging. I decided to do a double module um, that they called uh, instrumental and vocal teaching. And if you studied uh, the practical and the theory module, for two years, you would graduate with an extra qualification. So I decided to do that. So I graduated not only with my degree in performance, but with um, a licentiate certificate in teaching as well. So I'm super grateful that I did that actually, because every teaching job I've applied for since then has gone, oh, hey, this is quite interesting. Not everybody has one of these. Mm -hmm. And it tells us straight away that you have done some study into teaching, which is, you know, they see it as an advantage. So I'm grateful that I did it because you know I sat on the fence for a while did I want to commit to it for two years and actually it's probably been an absolute saving grace in getting me as much work as I have so my my career now is sort of 90 percent at the moment especially because you know Covid has gotten in the way of a lot of stuff and I've moved to a different area of the country most of what I do is teaching Um, and I think there are kind of two things that sort of led me this way the first was in my In my last year at college, I started to have some difficulty with my mental health. Um, I'm sure uh, it's easy to find uh, interviews where I bang on about this a lot more, so I'll I'll not speak about it for too long. But I uh, have a formal diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder, um, OCD, which uh, is fine. I will talk about it all day long, but it's really boring to listen to me do so. So I won't talk about it for very long. I mention it though, mainly because I spent 10 years hiding it and pretending I didn't have it. and I did that because it was really misunderstood and people made fun of it so now I think it's my job now that I've you know I've been through therapy and I I manage it fairly easily day by day I think it's really important that I talk about it and that I don't hide it away anymore because if if I can speak openly about it and more people know about it and that it's you know not scary or stupid or silly then maybe somebody else who has it will have an easier time opening up about it looking for help etc etc so mentioned this mainly because um it started to impact my practice so i was taking professional auditions at the end of college but because i was struggling at the time with my ocd it was undiagnosed at that point so i I just knew that there was something in the matter i didn't know what it was it was really hard to be in a practice room on my own with you know a concerto and a pack of audition excerpts Mm -hmm. and so after a couple of years of trying to sort of, I guess, force myself through the auditions because that's what I thought I should do. Just by the way, like when you graduate with a performance degree, you think, okay, well, now I'm supposed to get a job in an orchestra. Yeah. Ha ha ha, that's not how it goes. Um, and so I kept trying to, I guess, shoehorn myself down this path that I, it was kind of like trying to put a square peg in a circular hole. You know, like <laughs> something definitely wasn't fitting for me. And so what I was. <laughs> practicing and focusing and doing auditions and that it just wasn't really working out for me but i was finding that teaching um was a lot better because i was having to focus on other people and other people's problems and help them improve their playing and and just kind of get out of my own head and so i took on a lot of teaching work one because i had to pay the bills but two i realized that actually i was i suppose all right at it um and it was you know it was a better way for me to to focus my my musical attentions um so that's kind of what I I ended up doing for a long time, and I ended up moving around the country a bit, not really deciding where to to settle. I studied in London, I moved back to Cambridge, that's where I grew up for a little while. Then I met my partner, and I moved to Oxford, where he worked, um, and that's where I really started to build up a lot more teaching. And like I say, we moved last year, so we now live in the Midlands of the UK. And so my My job nowadays is a little bit weird, I suppose. (laughs) It's all sort of work that I got accidentally, but I actually really like how it works. Um, And so I've I've organised my schedule. So I actually only teach four days a week and I leave one day free essentially for working on my podcast. So I do two days a week where I go to a primary school and I teach classroom curricular music. Um, which was something I didn't really think that I'd be interested in or for that matter any good at. But I've done it for a year now and I'm going back for a second year because I do actually quite like it. I like the school, I like the kids <laughs> and the job is quite nice because I get to design my own curriculum. Yep. Um, so I can, I can choose what I teach the kids as long as they, you know, the school says as long as they do performing, composing, uh, listening, then as long as they're doing all of those things, they can learn that in whatever format I see fit, which is kind mm-hmm. of great. Because it means that, you know, we don't have to do some of the stuff that the kids are just not interested in. You know, we yep. don't have to listen to Haydn all day long because they're not really bothered by that. Um, so that job is really quite lovely. And the the rest of it is um, private and uh, other school visits in um, small group brass, individual brass, uh, individual piano lessons, um, various workshops and things like that. And then, yeah, one day a week on Baldur's Brass Podcast.
1: That's awesome. And I, I love how, how many different facets of your career there are. Right. And it's kind of like this puzzle, right. And you put these little pieces together and I admire that so much. I I think for me, like being a full-time teacher, it's really hard to do that. Right. (laughs) It's like Mm -hmm. five days a week. And then Friday nights we have football games. And so I'm gone until like midnight trying to get back home. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I've found different ways to like kind of you know allow myself to be able to still be a performer because that's something I'm super passionate about it really like um hurts me to hear about you know music teachers that like never pick up their instrument again right Mm -hmm. um so that's a part of my life that I'm still trying to be active in different ensembles and you know now I'm working with my old um university and I'm conducting one of their groups as part of their community art school and so I'm trying to like do different things, right? Um, as much as I can, I think that's a great way to keep your passion and your motivation for, for music, for performing, for creating, for teaching alive. I, I really think it mm-hmm. is. Um, that's like one of my big philosophies is keeping your hands into so many different things. Um, and you've talked about quite a few things, um, in in talking about your career that I wanted to just dial back on and, and talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about, um, The first one I want to talk about is this um, expectation of being an orchestral musician. Um, Mm -hmm. We talk about this a lot on my show of, you know, there's a lot of pressure for performance majors, you know, whether they're super into orchestral performance or not to fit that mold um, and to have that be their central goal when they graduate or while they're in school. Um, And for most people, they don't end up being orchestral musicians. Like you said, like, that's not mm-hmm. how the real world works. And I know that, um, in, in the UK, you're very limited, um, with what professional large orchestras there are. Um, yeah. I know there's only a few, so, um, you know, getting a job in that setting, I'm even in your country versus our country is like, even smaller right like it's bad over here like (laughs) over there it must be like you know really really rare um so I am just curious I know you had mentioned there's that expectation is is that a very large expectation do you think in um music schools all over the UK or do you think that's just kind of like something that you personally felt
0: yeah I think I probably put it on myself more than more than the the college put it on us so I think You know, if you asked like 13 year old me what I was going to do for a living, I was going to go and play the trombone. And then when I got my place at music college, I was like, oh, well, that's a dead start then. Like, I'm absolutely set for life. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, four years at uh, music college, you start to realize, hold on, there are three three tenor trombonists in my year and there's two seats per orchestra. Now, there are four colleges in London, there Mm -hmm. are three tenor trombonists at each. I mean, it says 12 tenor trombonists and two seats per orchestra <laughs> yep. and you start to think actually I, I, I'm going to go back to my square peg and a round hole like the, those things don't just just don't fit together and I think I still thought that that's what I needed to do not so much that I mean I'd love it if it still happened to me of course if like the LSO rang me up to go and play with them I'd jump at the chance this is not Mm -hmm. me saying at all that people shouldn't want to play in orchestras or that i don't enjoy playing in orchestras um or that i wouldn't take the opportunities when they would arise that's that's not what i'm saying at all um just so that i'm not sounding like i have a massive downer on it but (laughs) we're all kind of trained on the classical course by primarily orchestral players and we're trained to kind of sound a certain way and play a certain repertoire and I don't know if that's just because that's you know what our teachers learn and what their teachers learn and if it's just this historical thing where that's what you should learn to do at college but I would say that that's possibly it's, it's how I was trained, but it's not necessarily my teacher was like, right, now off you go into the wide world and get an orchestral seat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think here we're just getting around to the idea that um, being a professional player, you could have a chamber group that's your professional group. I think that's becoming more of a thing here now. Um, maybe some people listening think that I'm just behind on the times on that, which is fair enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably the idea I had of myself, that's what I went into college wanting to do. So by the end that's what I still thought I needed to do. Um, yeah but you know, maybe maybe it's a case when uh, when we graduate, we should be encouraged, like you said to, to try loads of different things you know Mm -hmm. find what it is you actually like to perform in find out whether or not you're any good at teaching because not everyone should be teaching yep (laughs) not everybody (laughs) is good at teaching just because you you know how to put you know air down an instrument that make noise come out of the other doesn't mean that you're going to effectively teach that to everybody else it's not for everyone it doesn't have to be for everyone yep um I think if I've learned anything I mean (laughs) this is like stereotypical I turned 30 this year and now I've had an epiphany um if I've learned anything (laughs) since graduating college it is that you know my job doesn't really matter what it contains like I trained to be a musician and as long as I'm paying the bills by doing music related things then I've kind of got it all right. I remember I was, you know, two or three years ago when I realised that I probably was never going to get an orchestral seat. I was devastated Mm. because I realised that probably I wasn't ever going to get that now. But now it's like, well, I'm really lucky to be paying the bills by doing anything music related. So probably it's fine. You know, I still play my instruments every week. I practice. I take gigs when they come in i teach i you know i conduct i do a podcast you know i do plenty of stuff i don't really need this <laughs> i don't yeah. really need anything extra so you know i think it's finding things that you're content with and if it means that you can pay the bills doing the thing that you trained to do in whatever capacity that might be then you have still got it pretty good
1: oh yeah oh for sure and um few things that you said that kind of like sparked um, you know, my thoughts when I was listening to you. Um, we were talking about uh how there there is that like thought when you when you go to graduate that oh I'm going to be an orchestra musician. And and I do agree, I think part of it is like your own personal interest, like when you go into school, like you said. But mm-hmm. I think also teachers teach uh the way they're taught inherently right so like i i agree with you and that i believe like the method that of the way that people teach at the collegiate level just gets kind of passed down like this is how oh this is how my teacher taught their trumpet studio this is the rep that we played this is the stuff that we focus on and then it's just copy and paste right um Mm -hmm. and so I, i feel like there needs to be people that are actively changing the narrative um and yes, we should still, because there will be people that will be like, well, it's important that we learn blah, 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 blah. And yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. It is important that you learn certain things. I agree. So like my trumpet players out there, yes, you need to learn the Haydn and the Hummel and the Hindemith and all the H's, right? I, I'm mm-hmm. not saying don't learn those things. Um, but also, I I think the narrative needs to also be focused on making a career in music and what that mm-hmm. entails, not just making an orchestral career in music, um, showing people um, how to be successful in a chamber music setting, showing people um, all of the managerial administrative stuff behind being a freelance musician, um, Mm -hmm. giving people the skills to be successful before they graduate, instead of having them like fly by the seat of their pants, trying to find work and figuring out, oh, how do I do this? (laughs) How do I do that? Um, And that sort of thing. So I I think at the college level, the narrative needs to be changed to supply students with those tools to do whatever they want to do. And it's Mm -hmm. very easy to teach how you're taught, right? And I think it just needs to be an active understanding of this is how I was taught, but this may not be the most successful way to go about this particular group of students. Um, Mm -hmm. So just being more adaptable to what is my studio interested in? What are their goals? And how can I help them with that? And changing that narrative. Um, Because I do think that, you know, teaching how we're taught is just an inherent thing that we all do, just like Mm -hmm. out of habit, but it takes that, you know, active thinking of Wow. How have my experiences made me successful? How have they not made me successful? And what can I do to better, you know, the next generation of trumpeters or trombonists or whatever? Um, and I, I do think there inherently is like a hierarchy in how people think about music and how people put, you know, orchestral musicians on a little bit of a, of a pedestal in their thought. And I think mm-hmm. that just comes from, you know, historically, society, whatever, I do think that is changing um, a lot. And I, and I see it in a lot of younger players, um, you know, like even like our age group. When I was in high school, I was I was dead set on being an orchestra musician because I was, you know, it was like my little trumpet player ego was like coming out in the back of my head because, you know instrument stereotypes are real. Um, and I was going like, (laughs) I'm going to be an orchestral musician, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, like, I really loved teaching too. And so like, that was always in my brain, but I was like, you know what, I need to prove to the world that I'm a good trumpet player. I need to do this. I need to do that, you know, like my 16 year old brain. Um, and so I, I mean, I think that drastically changed for me when I was in music school, because I found that like teachings, my, my real passion. Right. But I think that that, you know, little like ego part of your brain when you're in high school kind of (laughs) infiltrates, Mm -hmm. um, what you, the conversations that you have with yourself, at least that's what kind of like, I felt like from my experience. And I think that does have an effect on people's perception of different musicians. But again, I think that's changing. When I look at my high schoolers now, the ones that want to go to music school, they don't have the same thought process um about certain things. And I, and I think that's good. And I think that also comes from like K12 educators need to focus more on all the different careers in music, you know, not just the performer, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Teaching kids more about composers, more about conductors, more Mm -hmm. about, you know, all these different people that all come together to make music. Um, But yeah, that was me on my my, my soapbox just now. But I do think (laughs) what you were saying was super important. And you had also mentioned that, like, some people are just not, teachers. Right. And I think that's also Mm -hmm. a good point to bring up. And that's like one of the, one of my, um, pet peeves as an educator and as a person that like majored in education and did all the training and blah, 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 is that I feel like there are a lot of like performance majors, especially now with COVID and everything that are just like, Oh, I'll just teach a bunch of people. Um, and Mm -hmm. it is, it is a different skill set. Um, to be able to teach just because like you said, you're able to, you know, put your instrument together and make really good sounds on it does not necessarily mean you're going to be able to teach and, you know, 10 year old kid how to do that. Right. (laughs) Um, so I I do agree with you in that, um, that is a completely different skill set. but not to say that people shouldn't try it out. Like you were saying, like, I really agree. Everybody should try to teach at some point in their life, but yes, it's not for anybody. So everybody. So, um, Don't think that like you're just going to walk in and it's going to inherently just like click for you. It might not. And that's okay. Um, But exploring different things is always encouraged. Um, But yes, it is a completely different skill set, you know, even with the age groups. Right. Like you might be, you know, great at teaching at the collegiate level, you know, teaching um, students that have already had a bunch of experience under their belt are semi-professional now. Um, versus how do you start a nine-year-old on their <laughs> instrument and teach them how to get their first sounds yeah. and be able to read music and all those things, completely different worlds. Um, but everybody should explore mm-hmm. it for sure. I agree.
0: And the balance of, of how much you do is different for each person as well. You know, yeah. I know people who can teach all day, every day, five, six, maybe seven days a week. Yeah. I found that I'm a much better teacher if I only teach... Four days a week if I teach any more than that my concentration isn't there I'm not giving them the most attention or the best organization or the best presentation of the information yeah um, but I've taught five and six days a week you know I've done all of that but as well as finding out whether or not teaching is for you figure out how your working week best works for you because there's got to be balance that's the other thing it's taken me a long time to figure out how much I should be doing for me to get the most out of it and for the people I'm working with and for to get the most out of it.
1: Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. And I, I think that also comes with, you know, making sure you're also taking care of yourself um, mm-hmm. as well, because that's super important. That's something that I'm I'm slowly learning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that my my job is not my life, even though it feels like it's my life. Um and, and that's a great way to advocate for yourself is making sure your schedule and what you are doing and what time you are committing to your job is healthy for you as well. I do. I do agree with that. And, you know, like your system of four days a week is a great system and it works for you. Um, You know, someone may be able to do more, someone may have to do less. Um, It's Mm -hmm. all, you know, up to their personal sort of discretion. Um, I don't want to delve too much into your OCD diagnosis, but I do Mm want to mention it um, because, you know, you had mentioned it doesn't, you know, affect the majority of how you operate or run your career now um but i do want to like commend you for being so open about your diagnosis and and being willing to advocate for ocd because i do think it is a um it is stigmatized a lot i think people you know mm-hmm. casually will you know mention it and be like oh i'm ocd about this or i'm ocd about that um with complete disregard of the fact that it is a diagnosis that like some people have yeah. um and it, it should be taken seriously. It's not something that, you know, people should just, you know, say in casual conversation. There are, you know, words now that, you know, people have pretty much done away with because, you know, they've been considered offensive um, to certain people who are struggling, you know, different populations of people. And they've kind mm-hmm. of been melded away from our casual conversation. But OCD is one that I feel like is still in the language of people all the time. Um so what are your thoughts? You know, someone that has had a formal diagnosis of OCD, um, how do you approach that? Like when people are, you know, casual conversation, does that, you know, bug you a little bit being someone that actually has OCD? Um how do you feel about that when people are using that in casual conversation? Yeah,
0: it it rubs me the wrong way, to be honest. It um it's worse when it's done on on TV you know mm. if like the mainstream media are doing it then how on earth do we expect to change the narrative i mean yeah. this week alone i have heard it used as an adjective in two separate settings but i i have the issue that it often comes up with people i don't know well enough to perhaps either tell them about my diagnosis or to call them out on it and Mm -hmm. sometimes it's people that are in a more senior position than me um, in a working environment and it's just it's awkward Um, it's really awkward and i think it's it's really easy to change the things that you describe like if you're trying to say that you're really particular about something then just say you're particular about it you don't need to say you're really ocd um i mean i haven't got my camera on for this interview but the people that say like I'm so OCD when what they really mean is they're neat and tidy. If my partner's listening to this, he is absolutely like rolling his eyes at that because I am <laughs> so messy. I'm so messy. I'm I'm organised, but I often leave the house like the tornado has come through. Um, <laughs> you know, that's that's not something that I think is accurate either yeah. about um, the condition. So just just in case anyone has heard of OCD and doesn't really know what it entails. I'll just do a sort of miniature dive on it just for a second. So OCD is where You have intrusive thoughts. Everybody has intrusive thoughts. Every single person in the world has intrusive thoughts. Um, And this is just my momentary content warning. I am going to describe situations in which uh, intrusive thoughts can manifest that may be slightly distressing. Uh, The one that um, I go to when I describe this, and my therapist used this particular scenario, which is why I go to this one, is, you know, if you're waiting for a train one day, sometimes the thought will come through your head, what if I jumped in front of the train today? now for most people that's just a a weird passing thought and they just go oh that was a weird thought never mind on with the rest of your day but for someone with OCD they attach importance to certain intrusive thoughts and they become recurrent and distressing so if I use the same example you might spend your whole day then thinking but what if I did jump in front of that train what if next time I'm waiting for a train I jump in front of that train what if and it goes around and round and round and round and round. so people with OCD uh, develop what we call the compulsions which are not necessarily linked behaviours um, and they're definitely not rational behaviours and most of us know this by the way we don't need people to point it out to us um, and yeah. if you see someone performing their compulsions you don't need to draw attention to it because we know they're weird um, but You know we perform these rituals because it quietens those thoughts now on the surface of that that seems perfectly um, innocuous you know you something worrying happens you do something to calm yourself down except these things then become cyclical. So you have the thought, then you perform the compulsion, and then the thought comes back again, and you can perform the compulsion, and it goes around, 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 and you get stuck in this cycle. Mm. So when people say things like, oh, is just like washing your hands a lot, or turning off the light switch a certain amount of times, and oh, it's quite funny, really. Actually, if you're stuck in that cycle of that thought and that compulsion, that thought and that compulsion, and that can take a lot of time out of your day, um, to worry and and um do the do the action and worry and do the action it can become quite debilitating so I know on the surface of it if you see someone washing their hands compulsively or you know checking their front door is locked 20 times it seems silly as an outside observer on the inside it can be really stressful really tiring um, and it can be a lot so when i hear somebody use it in casual conversation I think, I really wish I could show you what it was like when I was at my worst, because it was difficult, it was upsetting, and not just for me, you know, for my family and my friends who are basically watching this little self-destructive creature, me or the OCD, whichever you want to think of as the creature, um, just sort of going round and round like this in a way that the only person that can help is a trained therapist, I think, for OCD when it's at its worst, because it's, it, you really do get stuck in your ways. So I do really implore of anyone, just think about the language that you use because it's not as simple and silly and uh, jokey as it sometimes seems from an outside perspective. Yeah. So that's a bit deep, isn't it? <laughs>
1: oh, no, no, I completely agree. I mean, I, I feel like OCD is stigmatized a lot. Um, people mm. throw ADHD around. Mm-hmm. Um, people throw, you know, anxiety and depression around PTSD so much. is another one that gets PTSD? used. Yes, absolutely. And I, I am super careful about, you know, even, even me, because I feel like, you know, my age group and we were kids, we used to throw those words around all the time. And like, I, yeah. I even like check myself sometimes too, like, instead of saying, you know, cause I, I tend to be a very type A person, but a lot of times people mm-hmm. Um, people equate type A with OCD. Those are two completely yeah. different things, right? Yeah. Um, and OCD doesn't necessarily have to be people that are are type A, like you were saying. Um, mm-hmm. and so I completely agree. There are a lot of a lot of words and a lot of um diagnoses that people like throw around mm-hmm. in casual conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, I myself am a type one diabetic. And so, you mm-hmm. know, when you know you're your kids, you might like throw around things like, you know, you're eating a lot of candy yeah. and you might be like, oh, like you're going to give yourself diabetes. Like people joke about diabetes and like, you know, yep. assume that it's always like, you know, a person that's, you know, large and doesn't move and things like that. Yep. And people, people joke about it a lot, especially kids, you know? Um, and so, you know, I was diagnosed later in life. I was diagnosed at 20. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a physical disability it's not anything you know um that's like mental disorder emotional disorder whatever but I still find myself getting rubbed the wrong way a little bit when people make jokes about diabetes and things like that now because mm-hmm. I am of that population um and so I f- feel like it's kind of unfortunate that people like don't really make the association um with with jokes like that until they're actually in it you know
0: yeah and and just because something is manageable you know You you'll have spent time learning how best to manage your diabetes and to look after yourself properly. Just because it's manageable doesn't mean that it's not occasionally worrying or stressful. Oh yeah. The same with me. You know, I've I've been through the therapy, but that doesn't mean I don't occasionally have a really rough day. Um, it doesn't mean that sometimes I don't have to go back to um the work that I did. And therapy here often is you you, and, and maybe I'm speaking unfairly for how mental health in the UK works, but you're encouraged to do therapy for a fairly short time. We don't, and you tend to go for a specific issue. So that's why I say I've done therapy and I'm out of it now, um, Mm -hmm. because that's ten. it, it tends to be, you know, you do a stint. You know, I saw a therapist once a week for about three months, and then he was like, right, go and see how you get on on your own. You can come back if you need to. But just because, you know, like we say, these things are manageable and day by day, we know how best to keep on top of them, doesn't mean that it's just fine yeah you know it doesn't mean it's like oh now you're fine with your ocd so i can go back to making jokes about it again or you Mm -hmm. know you know how to manage your diabetes so we can just throw that about every now and then that's not really how it works and you're absolutely right though like keeping an eye on what you say and you know i'll i catch myself out sometimes and you know that makes me feel awful because you know it really does rub me up the wrong way if somebody misuses ocd you know so i think as long as you're making the effort to check
1: how you express yourself, then that's all we really ask for. Oh absolutely. I completely agree. Um and to change the the, the subject a little bit mm-hmm. off of OCD, um I would like to talk about your podcast a little bit as yeah. well. Um I'm a super huge fan of as brass podcast, obviously since you. I'm a brass player. Um <laughs> so I'd like to talk a little bit about your podcast. So can we start just by talking a little bit about like what what gave you the idea to start a podcast? What kind of motivated you um, to create this material and start this? Because like myself, you are, you know, the one woman show running the podcast. So am I. So what kind of gave you that idea to start the podcast?
0: Well, Baldur's Brows podcast is very much a pandemic baby, um, so it started, the first episode went live in May 2020, um, but as as I'm sure you know, the planning and the starting of a podcast all happens, you know, a good few months before that first episode can yeah, out. Yeah, mine was
1: March 2020, I started planning.
0: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so I started planning as soon as the pandemic hit, basically, in March, but the first episode didn't go out until May. and At the time, I was doing a lot of um, whole-class brass teaching, which obviously, in times of pandemic, wasn't really easy for me to do from home. You know, the kids didn't have access to their instruments, and we can sanitise everything safely. So a bunch of my teaching kind of went out of the window, and I found myself with an extra sort of 10 or 12, 14 hours free a week. And my partner and I, at the time, were living in a flat, And so there was only so much practising I could do without driving my neighbours who were also also stuck at home. uh, Absolutely bananas. So i had been thinking for a while that I wanted some sort of journalistic output, if you like. So I couldn't decide if I wanted it to be a blog or a YouTube channel or a podcast or, you know, writing for a publication or something like that. I wanted to do something that wasn't teaching and playing, I wanted uh, an extra project that I just worked on in my spare time and so suddenly with all this extra time being stuck at home and not wanting to drive my neighbours absolutely bananas with the trombone, I thought I finally have the time to do the research and planning behind it. So, you know, in speaking to um, a few colleagues online I said, you know, if if I did a brass podcast would you listen to it and they all said yes. And i said what sort of format would you like it to be would you like it to be a stream of consciousness would interviews be of interest and you know the overwhelming thing was that people wanted to hear from other musicians so that that was kind of part one the real catalyst behind it is uh, i have a family member that often asks me what gigs have you got coming up and sometimes the answer is absolutely nothing but can i tell you about some of the other cool stuff that i'm doing and they just aren't really interested in all of the other stuff i was doing and i just thought you know what there are so many brass players in the world doing more than just playing brass instruments and i want to hear about all the other things that people do because maybe they also have family members who don't want to hear about them so it was this kind of like two things together that led me to to doing Baldur's Brass podcast in the in the format that it has now, so it's it's interview based. Um, we release once a week. I don't think we've missed a week yet since May 2020. So that's today, as we're speaking, episode 73, I think, goes live. So 73 weeks that we haven't missed a single one of releasing episodes. So that's kind of how it how it started and how it came about.
1: That's awesome. And, and what a great idea too. I, I've noticed the same thing of, um, you know, brass players do so many different things in their career. And I, and I love that, um, you're highlighting all of that, uh, as well. Is there a particular person that you've interviewed that you found, um, interesting? Like, (laughs) do you have a favorite? I'm just kidding. Not favorite, but do you have (laughs) some, some people that you were like, wow, like, I didn't know that about that person or that you found like super interesting.
0: There are, I mean obviously all of them are amazing um, and every guest gives me their, their time for free and yep. I'm very very grateful and they're all absolutely fascinating and I learned something from almost every single episode I think there are two that stand out that I was like afterwards I went and had a bit of a sit down and I was like whoa <laughs> like I learned a lot in that episode and the, the first one was um, Alan Thomas he was one of the very early episodes um, released sort of 2020 summer and um, And he was assistant head of brass at the Birmingham Conservatoire, and he was talking a lot about how they work in in their establishment for moulding their musicians or their players and how, kind of like we were talking about earlier, how they try to hone in on what they're actually good at, what they're actually interested in. And the, the most important thing I took away from his episode was, at the end he said, and not everyone goes on to do something in music. They have mm-hmm. all these skills that they learnt by being a musician, but they go and put them to use somewhere else. And it's just just his perspective is very um, open. It's very sort of sensible and very pragmatic. It's not like every trumpet player that walks through my studio doors because I'm an orchest- orchestral trumpet player should be an orchestral trumpet player. It's, it's not like that at all. And I think his, his episode was just really, really interesting on that front. And the, the second one, and um, was a recent one, was with Bente um uh, the euphonium soloist, and just her perspective on how to manage all of the things we've been talking about, how to manage this varied career and keep things interesting and um, champion for new music for her instrument and always keep things fresh for herself. It's just that there are two conversations that I just remember thinking, okay they've given me food for thought and when I go into an interview I don't always expect to come out having basically had a lesson um for an hour so those two are ones that I think were just they hit on points that really resonated with me particularly um but obviously all of my guests are amazing and the the thing that I didn't mention in my first answer that I should have done is that I don't just interview household names or brass superstars that's not what i'm after yeah. i want to talk to anybody that identifies as a brass professional um whatever capacity that that is for them maybe they play gigs all weekend and then they work a different job during the week or you know um as with like brown borden you know she's a trumpet professor at collegiate level but she also has a yoga studio like i just wanted to talk to anybody under that umbrella because i think we all do so many things and we have to to keep ourselves interested and motivated that, you know, I wanted to have this wide range and also maybe somebody would hear an episode and learn about a musician that they had no idea about beforehand, which I think is really important. It's all just, you know, it's,
1: it's technically a big networking event, but you know, in a much nicer way. Oh yeah. Oh, I completely agree. And I, and I try to strive for the same thing as well. I have people reach out to me that are, you know, still students in music school or are just Mm -hmm. starting their careers or people that, you know, do other things besides music. And a lot of times when they reach out to me, they go, oh, I don't know if you'd be interested in interviewing me, but and, mm-hmm. you know, I always come back to them like, everybody's welcome here. Everybody's welcome to share mm-hmm. their story. I don't care if you're, you know, the principal trumpet of blah, blah, blah orchestra, or you are, you know, still in high school. I've had, I've interviewed high schoolers before. Um, Amazing. so it doesn't matter. Right. Um, cause everybody's got a story that they want to share. Everybody has different musical experiences. So I do agree mm-hmm. with you there that, you know, um, it is, you are more than welcome to share your perspective, um, as a musician, because we're all musicians, right? This is what we Mm -hmm. do. Um, and so I do appreciate that, that you are doing that work as well. Um, thank you. So if my listeners would like to check out your podcast as well, where would they go to check out your episodes?
0: Sure. So we stream live uh, every week to Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Spotify. Um, we host through Libsyn, so you can find us through our host website that I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it is baldersbrass.libsyn.com, Um, but all of your major providers as well. You'll find us on Sunday evening. Um, we're on facebook and on instagram if you want to find out more about guests and various other things that we do we occasionally have giveaways we sometimes do conversational panels um sometimes you'll see some of my face on the Baldus
1: Bros podcast page which, uh, <laughs> i don't know how welcome that is but sometimes i go in there too <laughs> that's awesome melissa i want to thank you so much um for giving us your time today for sharing your experiences um, and all of your thoughts really appreciate having you um, everybody should also check out Melissa's podcast bold as brass as well with all the information she's given and I will be sure to tag all of that podcast stuff um, in in my post later when we release the episode. so thank you so much again Melissa not at all thank you so much for having me <laughs>